As many of you know, before starting Haven, I was a part of a church denomination. I loved for many years, uh, but ultimately felt like I did need to leave at some point. Anyway, in the later years I was there, within that group of churches, there was this popular catchphrase that was gaining steam. People would post it regularly on social media, captioning favorite photos, or maybe using it as a hashtag to describe some event that had happened. And the phrase was this, I love my tribe. I love my tribe. When I first heard folks using this language, I don't know if it actually bothered me. You know, I think I maybe connected with the spirit behind it that was a sense of joy being with this group of people. Um, even if I wouldn't necessarily have used that phrase myself. But of course the mantra took on a different feel when I started to feel like my own membership in the tribe was questioned. As I started to ask questions or name disagreements with uh, where this movement had landed on LGBTQ inclusion, it became clear that others in the community, uh, particularly uh, those who were in places of power were, were trying to make clear that they thought I no longer belonged. This was often expressed in kind of passive aggressive ways. While I had experienced this community of churches to essentially be my spiritual family of origin, uh, I would get questions like, why would you even wanna be a part of this denomination if you disagree with us on this? Well, the last national conference I attended felt painfully thick with irony to me because the title given to the conference was all in, period. And the idea of course was kind of a play on words, both the idea of being totally on board, totally committed to something, as well as the idea of everyone belonging, everyone getting to play, they would say. And that was the part that felt fraudulent to me. It, it wasn't all in, period, actually. I joked to my friend and pastor mentor, Adie, who was there with me, I think it's actually all in asterisk, right? And the LGBTQ folks and those like her and I who believe they should be included too, we were the asterisks. After that, seeing photos captioned, I love my tribe on Facebook didn't bring any joy. It just brought pain because it was clear that this tribe was no longer one that could love me fully or that could, and, and, and that made it hard for me to truly love it as well. I share this story as we continue our series on rebuilding after a time of disruption or crisis, a series I'm calling Recovering the Sacred. And in this series, we're thinking about rebuilding our lives, our personal practices, our faith collective experiences after a season of profound disruption and isolation that we've experienced during this pandemic. How can we cultivate in this season and recover experiences of the sacred, which I'm defining as that which connects us with a bigger reality, that which connects us with God? Throughout the series, we're looking to a couple of places for inspiration. So in our biblical texts, we're taking some time to explore this part of the narrative from our Bible, 
about a season of rebuilding after a time of trauma, a time of prolonged displacement, the Babylonian exile. Last summer, in the midst of the pandemic, we gained insight from studying the exile itself, but now we're looking at the rebuilding season, right? The story of how the former exiles rebuilt. That's primarily told in two short books that scholars actually believe were originally composed as one, but they now appear in our Bible as two books called Ezra and Nehemiah. We're also referencing, when helpful, some of the prophets who spoke into this time in Israel's story and other texts from the era. But in addition to our biblical texts, I started off by presenting us a framework that comes to us from Father Richard Rohr, who's a contemporary um, Franciscan monk and teacher, and some of his teaching on how individuals and collectives can grow through a cyclical process that he describes as moving from order to disorder to reorder. Now, this is our third conversation in the series. We started looking briefly at how the rebuilding of the temple began with a lot of mixed feelings as the people dedicated the foundation. And then last week we looked at how the work seemed to stall out not long after it started, but then after about 15 years, a couple of prophets named Haggai and Zechariah spoke some fresh vision to the people and their leaders. They highlighted some new favorable political circumstances and all of that gave them the boost they needed to finish the job and rebuild the temple. And that brings us to the next development in this rebuilding narrative in Ezra and Nehemiah. It's the story we have for today. A story which, if I'm going to be totally honest with you, I find to be pretty problematic. In fact, the more I read this story and studied it this week and read commentaries on it and thought about what to share today, the more I wondered if we should actually look at it at all. <laughs> Maybe it's best to just skip this part of the rebuilding narrative altogether. That would at least be more comfortable for me. But to do that, I don't think does justice to this bigger process that we're engaging. The process of growing from order where Father Rohr would say that things generally make sense to us through disorder. When life gets in the way, and the understanding we might have had kind of falls apart. And hopefully moving into reorder, a place of deeper, more integrated wisdom and meaning making. And if that's to happen, then part of the reordering process means reckoning with things from our past, things from our traditions, so on, that trouble us, that we disagree with, rather than just ignoring them or throwing the whole thing away because parts of it are challenging. So today, I'm hoping this might be a little teachable moment for us, okay? As we engage this text. I'm gonna invite us together to do the work of trying to reorder. We're gonna look at a story from our tradition, not necessarily as a model for how we then should live and rebuild, but as a conversation partner in our own growth and desire to move from a season of disorder to that place of reorder and reconnection with God. So that's the goal. You with me? Let's try it. So first, let me give you the setup for our troubling story. As we saw last week, the temple of the Jewish people has now been rebuilt in Jerusalem. And at this point, 
um, our story like skips 50 years forward to the next big development. And that is the introduction of one of the title characters that we're looking at in this series, the person of Ezra. So who is Ezra? Well, we find out in the story that Ezra is a priestly scribe. That means he's from one of the families who are qualified according to Jewish tradition in this time to become a priest, to oversee and participate in worship, temple worship in Jerusalem. And he's also a scholar. That's the scribe part, okay? He's been in Babylon this whole time. And he's been an important part of the academic work that was happening there to write down and compile and systematize much of the Jewish people's scriptures and faith traditions. So he's been a core part of helping this faith tradition move from being primarily oral to one rooted in the written word. Remember, most scholars believe that most of the Hebrew Bible was composed during the Babylonian exile and, and afterwards. So this is one of the prime people doing that work. In fact, most scholars believe he might have even been the primary compiler and, and editor of the Torah, which is like the first five books of the Hebrew Bible and, and the heart of the Jewish tradition. So this is an important person. But about 50 years after the temple's been restored, it's not clear that those who are actually living in Jerusalem really know a lot about what faithful worship to Yahweh in a temple is supposed to look like, okay? And so Ezra, who's in Babylon, this chief scholar, is sent from Babylon to Jerusalem in this mission that's actually endorsed even by the Persian emperor who's occupying the whole landscape, right? And the emperor endorses Ezra to lead a whole fresh group of migrants from Babylon to Jerusalem to continue the work of rebuilding the Jewish community there and specifically kind of resuming religious practices. It's kind of like, imagine a renowned academic author, researcher, professor, leaving their work at the university at, at Berkeley or Harvard to go to DC or Silicon Valley with the hope of applying all of this academic knowledge to bringing practical growth and reform to an organization in real time. So Ezra and his crew set out from Babylon and it takes them four months of caravanning all the way to Jerusalem, but they get there, they bring lots of animals, they bring lots of things to be sacrificed at the temple. Um, they're, they're blessed by the emperor. They bring the letter that says Ezra is being sent. I'm even funding some of the sacrifices I'm sending along, you know, so you all can worship your Yahweh, right? And that's where we pick up our story at the beginning of Ezra 9. So I will read it for us now. Now, when these things had been completed, the leaders approached me, meaning Ezra, this is written in his voice, and said, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the local residents who practice detestable things, similar to those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Indeed, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has become intermingled with the local residents. Worse still, the leaders and the officials have been at the forefront of all this unfaithfulness. And this is Ezra again. When I heard this report, I tore my tunic 
and my robe and it ripped out some of the hair from my head and beard. And then I sat down quite devastated. Everyone who held the words of the God of Israel in awe gathered around me because of the unfaithful acts of the people of the exile. Devastated. I continued to sit there until the evening offering. So the story seems to be, just to catch us up a little bit, and then we'll read on, that Ezra, this big wig theologian, biblical scholar, shows up into Jerusalem to help the local leaders like get on track. And immediately, some of these local leaders come and confess this issue. We've got a problem, boss. You should know that a lot of our men have taken for their wives women who are not part of the people of Israel. They've married foreign women. Ezra hears the news, and he, in his words, is for, uh, quite devastated. He starts immediately into this ritual of mourning. And as the text goes on, we see him pray this grand prayer of grief and confession that he publicly prays in front of all who are gathered. And we'll pick up after the prayer at the beginning of chapter 10. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping, throwing himself to the ground before the temple of God, a very large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children alike, gathered around him, and the people wept loudly. And then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, from the descendants of Elam, addressed Ezra, saying, We have been unfaithful to God by marrying foreign women from the local people. Nonetheless, there is still hope for Israel in this regard. Therefore, let us enact a covenant with our God to send away all these women and their offspring in keeping with your counsel, my Lord, and that of those who respect the commandments of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Get up, for this matter concerns you. We are with you. So be strong and act decisively. So Ezra got up and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath to carry out this plan. And they all took a solemn oath. And then Ezra got up in front of the temple of God and went to the room of Jehovah son of Eliashib. And while he stayed there, he did not eat any food or drink water, for he was in mourning over the infidelity of the exiles. So just to clarify that we're all hearing this right. Ezra's leading this group, grieving session, grieving the people in Jerusalem have so dishonored Yahweh by entering into these mixed marriages. And then one of the leaders steps forward and makes an announcement. Okay, y'all, clearly we screwed up. God did and want us to marry foreign women and we did it anyway and we let our sons do it and that must have been bad that was clearly bad and so we can make it right we can fix it we just need to get rid of the women and all the kids and start over we'll have a fresh start Ezra can lead us through the fix help us get right with God again yes that that is what's happening okay going on a proclamation was circulated throughout Judah and Jerusalem that all the exiles were to be assembled in Jerusalem. Everyone who did not come within three days would thereby forfeit all his property in keeping with the council in the officials and the elders. So they really want you to show up. All right, you forfeit all your property if you don't show up for the big meeting. Furthermore, he himself would be excluded from the assembly of the exiles. So you will also be excommunicated if you do not come to the big community gathering. So that's happening now. All the men of Judah and Benjamin were gathered in Jerusalem within the three days. It was in the ninth month on the 20th day of that month and all the people sat in the square at the temple of God trembling because of this matter 
And I think this is a little funny. And because of the rains. Apparently it was the rainy season. So there was a lot of rain. And, you know, this large gathering has to be outside. So then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have behaved in an unfaithful manner by taking foreign wives. This has contributed to the guilt of Israel. Now give praise to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the local residents and from these foreign wives. All the assembly replied in a loud voice, we will do just as you have said. However, the people are numerous and it is the rainy season. We are unable to stand here outside. Furthermore, this business cannot be resolved in a day or two. We have sinned greatly in this manner, meaning we have hundreds, if not thousands of marriages we now need to end. Let our leaders take steps on behalf of all the assembly. Let all those in our towns who have married foreign women come at an appointed time and with them, the elders of each town and its judges until the hot anger of our God is turned away from us in this manner. So essentially they say, let's put a system together in place to process hundreds of divorces. We'll do one village at a time. All the men who married non-Israelite women in that village will have to come with their families to Jerusalem. They'll have to stand in the rain before Ezra, who will be the judge, confess their sin, send away their wives and kids. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Josiah, son of Tikva, were against this, assisted by Meshulam and Shebathai, the Levite. So four men said no out of thousands. So the exiles proceeded accordingly. They were overruled. Ezra, the priest, separated out by name men who were leaders in their family groups. They sat down to consider this matter on the first day of the 10th month. And on the first day of the first month, they finished considering all the men who had married foreign wives. So it took three months, partly probably because it was the rainy season. And apparently group divorces were also an outdoor affair. But after three months, the deeds were done. Hundreds of women, plus all their children, were driven away from the community all around Jerusalem. What happens to them? Not mentioned at all. Doesn't seem to be of concern to Ezra or the story of rebuilding that he's telling. But of what we know of the ancient world and its deep patriarchal structure, we can assume whatever happened to those women and children, it wasn't good. All of these women and their children would have been immediately destitute, to say the least. Perhaps some of them might have been taken back into their former communities, into their parents' homes. We just don't know. But even if they found ways to feed themselves and their kids, they would have always carried that shame of rejection from their spouses and the community that they had built their families in. So maybe you get why I don't like this story very much. What do we do with it? Is the takeaway really that in order to rebuild a sacred community after a time of disruption and trauma, the only answer is to purify your group, to get rid of those who are in some way different, start over with people who are all the same, all the same way of worshiping? Is that what faithfulness to God means? 
For rather, Father Richard Rohr, the work of moving from disorder into reorder is the invit invitation to what he calls include and transcend. Include and transcend. What does that mean? I'm going to read this excerpt from Rohr because I think it's really crucial for how, how we might think about problems like, what do we do with this story in Ezra 9 and 10? Richard Rohr says this, the human preference for binary thinking has kept us from seeing that when history evolves with a new idea, cultural mood or consciousness, we need not, we dare not actually, completely exclude the previous idea, mood or consciousness. We grow best by including what was good and lasting in the previous stage and avoiding the overreaction and rebellious spirit that have characterized most revolutions up to now. This demands both humility and the capacity for non-dual thinking, qualities that are rare in most zealots, reformers, and revolutionaries. Slash and burn only creates whole new set of things to correct or rebel against in the long term. Either or thinking creates disjunction and mistrust immediately. Both and thinking creates continuity and trust over time. The nonviolent compromise can most simply be stated as include and transcend. It's the core of what we mean by wisdom and by nonviolence. As it applies here, we can trust and even need certain kinds of disorder to clarify what our original order meant, lacked, or intended. There are always a few needed correctives to every new proposition. And those correctives only appear over time and with practice. Thus, we have amendments to our original American constitution. And now, some think that these also need to be amended. Every reform becomes its own new orthodoxy and the painful pattern of growth begins all over again. Yes, this is the rub of evolution, like the grinding of tectonic plates. If we can rightly achieve an integration of original plan plus correctives, rule plus the exception to the rule, order plus disorder, we have what I am calling reorder. Helpful? Interesting, right? So if Rohr, what Rohr says here is true, the most helpful response to a story like this is not just to throw it away or burn it all down, but to do the harder work of identifying what might have been good in this moment and claiming that, while also in a non-dualistic way, holding intention that which was deeply flawed so that we can take forward with us the lessons of our ancestors and that we and live into their best intentions in less harmful ways. I'm not going to lie. I think this is really hard to do, but I do believe it's the sacred work we are called to. So I think we need to do our best. With that in mind, what in this story might we want to include in our reordering? What were the best intentions of our ancestors? 
Why did they undertake such painfully costly actions? I think as I've been studying this story this week, two core reasons come to mind. First, I think the people want to demonstrate faithfulness to God. I think the people want to demonstrate faithfulness to God. They want to show that they genuinely care about honoring Yahweh, which is their understanding of the divine. And the second is the people care deeply about cultivating a sacred community, cultivating a sacred community, a distinctive group of people that can embody their faith with them, living it together in a particular time and place with a particular set of people. And when I think about these aims of these spiritual ancestors, I see something familiar, something I wanna include in my own reordering, in my own recovering of the sacred. What I take issue with in this story is not a desire to live faithfully. It's not a desire to honor something bigger than myself and honor a truer, richer heart at the center of the universe that many of us call God or that our ancestors called Yahweh. Neither am I offended by their desire to do life and faith with a group of partners who can be there in the daily ins and outs of living with attention to the sacred. I share both of those aims myself. Ultimately, what I disagree with and where I want to transcend the work of my spiritual ancestors in this story is in the ways they tried to achieve those aims, right? The actions they took to get there. Ways I ultimately think didn't actually align with the heart of God, the, the love that Jeannie was teaching our kids about, right? That spirit and actually brought further harm rather than healing. So let's start with the first aim, demonstrating faithfulness to God. Where might that have been a bit off? The way the story is told, it just simply assumes, it just assumes that this is what obedience to God looks like. This is an act of devotion. It demonstrates what real worship looks like, this radical commitment to purity. Now, I'll be honest, I looked this week for sermons on this passage. There are not many. Not very many people like to preach this story, maybe for good reason. But those who do preach it often take this position, too. This kind of sometimes God calls us to do radically uncomfortable things to demonstrate our purity and our commitment that we are all in, right? But is this what honoring God must look like. The truth is, this story in Ezra 9 and 10 is not the only story in the Bible about how we connect with people who are different than us. In fact, it's not even the only story in this part of the Bible written in this era after the exile, addressing the very specific question of mixed marriages marriages between somebody from Israel and someone who is not. From this same era, written potentially within the same, you know, century, 50 years, in the post-exile time, come some of the most famous stories of women in the Jewish faith. 
We have the story of Ruth, who is Moabite woman. And hear that word, Moabite. It is one of the races named in Ezra as people who do detestable things. Okay, that, that, that was where we heard Moabites in our story. And the story of Ruth is a story of a Moabite woman who demonstrates faithfulness to her Israelite mother-in-law. She had been in a mixed marriage. And then when her husband died, she returned with her mother-in-law, her Jewish mother-in-law, to Israel, joining those people, famously declaring, your people will be my people, your God, my God. And Ruth ends up or, and marrying the Israelite Boaz, another mixed marriage, and eventually, through that marriage, becomes the great-grandmother of King David himself and ancestor to Jesus. Okay? This era also gives us the story of Queen Esther, the Jewish woman who was brought into the harem of the Persian emperor Xerxes himself. And eventually, she is made queen of all of Persia, though at the time, her Jewish ethnicity was hidden. When a plot to exterminate the Jewish people was underway, Esther took courageous action within her mixed marriage to identify her heritage and save her people. And the story celebrates how God uses this marriage between a Jewish woman and a Persian man to deliver her people from genocide. And of course, if we identify as Jesus followers, our primary lens for reading all of scripture and understanding the divine comes through the life and work of Jesus, who consistently demonstrated concern for those who the system, the religious system in his day had declared unclean, those who had to be removed from the community. And here is where my iPad is just overheated. Give me a moment. Okay. So one of the first people Jesus revealed his identity to was who? A Samaritan woman. A woman who many in that era would probably have seen actually as a descendant of the wives who were sent away. He's essentially going to someone in the lineage of the women who were exiled, right? And she is who he declares himself to be Messiah to, coming to unite those who are in Samaria and those who are in Jerusalem to bring this community back together. And of course, in the wake of Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection, the community of his followers feels compelled by the divine spirit to bring good news of God to those who are non-Jewish, which is most of us, right? The Gentiles, as they follow what seems like clear evidence that God moves and is manifested through both Jewish and non-Jewish people alike. And in the same way, amongst the young Christian community, the Apostle Paul encourages those who find themselves in mixed marriages, meaning for them, those who follow Jesus and those who do not, not to leave their marriages, for who knows, but those marriages might actually be a further means of bringing greater connection to God. I share all of this to say, perhaps the assumption that Ezra and his follower ex fellow exiles made was incorrect. 
faithfulness to God did not have to mean forced divorce and abandonment of all the women and children. I think we have to be able to say that. This leads me to consider the second related misstep I see in the story. While I appreciate sincerely the desire that those in Jerusalem had to form a distinctive community, I do disagree with the way they sought to achieve it. Believing they needed to form a collective identity through racial purity. They talk about the race being diluted. That's clearly creating this dividing line between who they saw themselves to be and everyone else. This misstep has been repeated in so many contexts throughout history and unfortunately is still with us today. And it reminds me of one of the most helpful paradigms I discovered in considering the life of faith years ago, the paradigm of bounded set versus centered set. This is ultimately about group identity. I'm just gonna share it with you real quick. Bounded sets clearly define a group by shared characteristics of the people in the group. In this case, in our story, Jewish heritage. Those who have it are in, those who don't are not. There's just like a very clear boundary marker and you're either in or you're out, whatever the characteristic is. For the group to hold together, you have to expel anyone who doesn't share the characteristic. And this, of course, is the core of, I would argue, so many of our societal problems. The way we expel those who don't share our race, our ethnicity, our gender, our language, our orientation, our politics, our theology, our abilities, and so on. But what if that wasn't the only way to form a collective? What if a group could be brought together not by the power of its boundaries, but by the power of its center? The power of the destination that each person in the group is moving towards. What if we could be unified by that which we share, that which brings us together and allow that to be stronger in our collective identity than whatever it is that separates us? That is what it means to me to be centered set. And when we hear at Haven speak specifically about being Jesus-centered, to me, it's about a belief that we are all trying to move towards the divine, recognizing Jesus as being uniquely helpful in that. We're moving towards Jesus with our life of faith. And that takes us necessarily into relationship with people who may look very different from us, just as it did for Jesus. But ultimately, we share a common heart, a common journey, a common desire to be shaped by Jesus, by the divine revealed through him. And ultimately we can do it together, believing that the power that draws us forward is stronger than any differences we share and gives us a way to find group identity, not through exclusion, but through radical, inclusive, self-giving love as demonstrated by Jesus himself, amen? That's what I mean by being centered set. So I share this all to say, I don't believe anymore. I'm just being honest. This is part of my reordering, that studying our tradition or our sacred text, that taking scripture seriously means finding a way to justify everything in there. I don't believe that anymore. I think it's reasonable. In fact, I think it's actually in keeping with the tradition we are a part of. 
to refute and to reclaim, to include and to transcend. I think that's why we have these books written in the same era like Ruth and Esther. They're speaking correctives to Ezra and Nehemiah. And those who've included all these texts together thought they all needed to be there for that reason. Because our very Bible is not a declaration, but a dialogue. I'm going to say that again, because I think it's really important and we don't hear it enough. Our Bible is not a declaration as if there were one thing to say. It is a dialogue. It is a conversation that has been happening for millennia and that we are invited to continue in today. We highlight different, vastly different points of view in scripture. And it invites us to wrestle along with our ancestors to discern where God is in any of it and in all of it. And so I can be grateful for the Ezra community's desire to honor the divine in their time. And I can also believe that they were wrong to believe that this is what faithfulness to God had to look like. And I can be grateful for Ezra's contributions, such important contributions to our Hebrew Bible to the Jewish faith, to the faith that we as Jesus followers have inherited. And I can also believe he missed God's heart for the widows and the orphans when he neglected the women and children in front of him and sent them away. I can recognize that Ezra may have been a great leader in many ways. And he was also a man limited by the culture of his time and the reality of his own flawed humanity. I can appreciate that this is actually true of most leaders throughout history. I can acknowledge this is true of myself. Even in anywhere I would lead and hope to be great, I am always limited by the culture of my time, by the reality of my own flawed humanity. In the same way, I can look to my former denomination I can appreciate the affection folks had for their community. The problem was not having a tribe and loving it. All of us need a particular set of people. The problem was defying that group against others. Tribes aren't the problem, only tribalism. This wrestling with the realities of our heritage this, I think, is sacred work. It's a vital part of moving from disorder to reorder. It's a vital part of reconstructing our lives, our faiths, our communities. And it's a work I want to invite each of us to engage in an ongoing way here at Haven. It's not just a work to do in the wake of a pandemic. It's a work to do throughout our lifetimes. So I ask you, what part of your heritage, your family of origin, your spiritual background, your political background, your racial construction, and so on. What parts of your heritage do you wish you could throw away? What parts would you prefer to bury or burn? What parts of your family story would you like to skip over? What might it mean for you instead to include and transcend? What might it mean for us collectively to do that together? Perhaps this is what the ancients always meant 
when they called us to confess our sins and repent. It wasn't to be controlled with shame, but to be freed to grow, to be able to speak honestly about our heritage, what was good and what was not, to learn from our mistakes and the mistakes of those who've come before us and to do better, to grow wiser, to love more deeply, to more clearly reflect as Jesus did, the Imago Dei, the image of God in all of us. May that be the challenge we all rise to as we reorder. Amen. Amen.